It's Monday, March 21st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy spring. Yes. We're officially into spring now. We are. As I was watching snowflakes sort of trickle down <laughs> last night at like 11 o'clock, I think we may have gotten gotten out of the, the worst of it, though. Yes. I, I think our be. friends to the north and the east are getting a little worse than we are. Yeah. But. Yeah, I'm but not, yeah, I'm just not used. I still still not used to it. No, it's spring break. I know. So, so this it is, is gonna, yeah. this is going to be a short week for us here on Market Foolery. We're we're cutting it just a little bit short. But uh, where where are you going? Uh, we are. You said right fly. before. You said yeah. right before we started taping. Well, I gotta go. <laughs> I got a flight to catch. We yeah, we were flying down to Charleston just for a quick quick jaunt. Uh, you know, my my daughters went down there when they were very, very young, so they wouldn't remember any of it. And that's where I uh, grew up in Mount Pleasant, right across the bridge there. So, we're going to go down for just, you know, a couple of days, hang out, check things out, enjoy the, the good weather, probably some good food, and... Um, you know, booked booked the trip on TripAdvisor. There you Chris. go. We'll uh, we'll get we'll get to the travel industry. Can I just say that I, I I've been to Charleston a couple of times. I've loved it. Uh, it's such a uh, it's such a great city. And you mentioned the food, and I consider it a mistake on my part that the first time I tried shrimp and grits was when I was in Charleston. Oh well, you and it was all down. And it was so good. I said to my wife, "It is all downhill. I can never eat this again. Unless I'm here in Charleston." Well, no, but what you do is so. What I figured out is you you can actually. I so I make shrimp and grits a lot at home, and I have I have figured out the real key. It's pretty simple, actually. Make sure you use lots of bacon. As long as you (laughs) use lots of bacon, it will be good. I promise. So it's not shrimp and grits so much as it's shrimp grits and bacon. It's just some combination of the three, but you want you want the scales to always tilt in favor of the bacon. You're not getting that on Bloomberg. <laughs> I mean, God bless the people at Bloomberg. You're not getting tips like that from them. We're going to dip into the full mailbag, but let's start with Merger Monday very much living up to its nickname. We got two deals to get to. Let's start with Sherwin Williams. Buying Valspar for nine point three billion in cash—that is a very nice thirty-five percent bump for anyone who owns shares of Valspar. I never even heard of Valspar really? before today. You're a homeowner. I am a How homeowner. Have you not heard of this? I—I I don't know. They're what? They're a competitor to Sherwin Williams. That Sherwin Williams said. Why compete when we can just buy you and and we can all be one happy family? I think that's the beauty of of investing and of being a homeowner is you learn so many just silly things that you wouldn't really care about otherwise. But yeah, I mean Valspar is it's going to be a, a very complimentary um, addition to what is a, a very well known name in the the paint and and coatings and sealants market in Sherwin Williams. This is a market where scale is is a tremendous advantage. And it is a bit of a Lowe's play. You know, you have Lowe's and Home Depot. They're they're the the two big home improvement stores that we know so well here in the states. And in 2015, Valspar they they had a significant portion of their business went to Lowe's. More than 10 percent of their sales. When you look at the the 10 largest customers, that accounted for just about 30 percent of their sales. So Lowe's. Is is a big customer of Valspar, which means now that they will be a big customer of Sherwin Williams, which is good. Uh, Sherwin Williams has a very big presence of their own. You see Sherwin Williams paint stores everywhere, uh, but generally speaking, this will also give them some some global exposure that they don't have currently. Uh, open open some doors to China and 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 more uh, Asian sort sorts of presence there. Um, 
So, you know, I mean, I think generally speaking, this is this is a good thing, good thing for Valspar shareholders. But I think it's it's going to add some more brands to the Sherwin Williams portfolio and and give them a really great sort of global position in in a a market that is always going to exist. And I think one that really stokes a lot of a lot of repeat sales. And believe it or not, I think a lot of of brand loyalty. I mean, one thing I've learned. Uh, as a homeowner myself, is that really it is okay to pay up for for paint sometimes? I mean, oh yeah, the, the quality does does matter there. We've seen it with Benjamin Moore, a Berkshire Hathaway company. Benjamin Moore, not cheap, but it's very good quality stuff. Uh, Sherwin Williams, very much the same. But I think Sherwin Williams attracts a number of different price points, which is uh, is a, is a nice thing for them uh, in this market. Also, hard to see paint being disrupted no. in, in any significant <laughs> I mean, it way. Just, it's just not, and and it's the easiest sort of little improvement you can make, whether you're buying a new home, selling your home, renting a home. I mean, anything you do, paint is an affordable way to really make uh, you know a difference in in wherever you're uh, wherever you're going. So last week, when when I and a few of our colleagues were in Austin, Texas, at South by Southwest, one of the stories, and we were very much focused on the scene at South by, but one of the stories that did catch my eye was involving Starwood Hotels yeah. and Marriott bidding for Starwood, and then Anbang is a, is a Chinese conglomerate. Yeah. Uh, going in with a higher bid, and now Marriott said today, no, 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 we really want Starwood. <laughs> and so, $13.6 billion worth of cash and stock later, it appears as though Marriott's takeover of Starwood is going to happen. You happy? You like um, this deal? I, I, yes, I do. I think this is another this is another market where scale really, really matters. In in the this sort of dance that we've seen play out here over the past few days, I think shows us that all of the parties involved really do realize that uh, we we have a market that is is changing considerably with sort of the introduction of this sharing economy, and and we see companies from Uber to Airbnb. Taking advantage of sort of different ways to to approach this market than than sort of the traditional hotels that we grew up with, um, and so the the Marriott deal, um, the initial offer for Starwood was a good one. I was a little bit surprised to see the counter. In hindsight, not too terribly surprised to see Starwood sort of use this as as currency to negotiate a little bit because I think the the powers that be at Star at Starwood and shareholders ought to feel really good about this. They know that they have something that a lot of people really want, and and ultimately, I think um, this is going to be great for Marriott because it will it will make the combined company the largest hotel company in the world, and. The nice thing about Marriott's business model today, it's very asset light. They're more in the the hotel management and sort of franchising. They don't typically own a lot of the hotel properties. Now they will own some more properties with this acquisition, assuming it goes through. But and and it very well may be that uh, another counter offer comes through here. I hope it doesn't because I think this probably makes more sense with Marriott. But we'll wait and see. Um, so they will. They will. It sounds like. Sell off some of those hard assets over time here to to get more back towards that asset light business model. But it's a it's a very very uh, good business model because they rely heavily on a again a, n- a number of brands in that portfolio that we're very familiar with. Uh, they cover sort of every every range on the spectrum there as far as hotels and uh, 
the way we're seeing the internet disrupt everything, travel is no exception. So whether it's Priceline, TripAdvisor, Expedia, all of these hotels are finding more and more reason to be on those platforms because that's where really all of the bookings happen. And just a good example there was with the trip we're taking to Charleston, we booked the 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 hotel stay. It's interestingly enough going to be at a Marriott, and we did it through TripAdvisor. Uh, got a lot of great information before we made the booking, so that we could make the booking with sort of a nice, educated decision there. So, you know, I think this is going to be something that works out for them. Um, I hope, I hope that this is the <laughs> the end of of the bidding because we are probably getting to two levels here now where you don't want to you don't want to seem too much too much like a desperate buyer. I haven't seen any reports of potential regulatory hurdles down the road. I'm assuming that is. That they're not going to run into that, but I, anytime I hear that a business, regardless of industry, on the basis of a deal or a merger, is now going to become the largest in the world, yeah, I have to believe that ears at the U.S. Justice Department perk up at that. Yeah, and and I think in most cases that's that's appropriate. They should. In this case, I, I don't think they'll really run into any regulatory issues because this the landscape. The competitive landscape in this market is changing so quickly, and it's it's not going to give them an unfair competitive advantage. Really, if anything, this is going to give them the ability to compete more uh, in the face of sort of this changing uh, landscape with, with more options out there for for travelers really than, than there ever have been before. So I, I don't suspect they they'll run into any real regulatory hurdles. By the way, separately, uh, Starwood signed a deal to operate hotels in Cuba. Which makes it the hey first now. U.S. hotel company to to be operating in Cuba since well since the 1950s. Since a long time ago. Since a long time ago. I'd, I'd love to get there before really it just gets out of control and, and becomes terribly commercialized. It seems like it would be a neat place to check out. But I think so. At Market Foolery is our Twitter handle. You can hit us up with questions there from Matt Riley in Chicago, Illinois. I keep seeing lots of TV commercials for Rocket Mortgage. It's scary how they're encouraging people to borrow money. Contrast those with the SoFi commercials, which have much better branding, helping people to educate, helping to educate people um, and refinance student loans. Yeah, I think since the DraftKings, since the fantasy sports people put the kibosh on their TV ads. I, I'm right there with Matt. If I'm <laughs> certainly over the weekend, I didn't watch a lot of the NCAA basketball tournament, but whenever I did, it seemed like there was an ad for Rocket Mortgage. And I think we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it in here. Those ads freak me out a little bit because they really are. They they really do seem like something out of the Big Short. They they yeah. seem like it's not just hey, we're going to make it easier for you. To get a mortgage, we're going to streamline the process. We're going to make it a complicated process easier. It really goes into, and it's your job as an American to get a mortgage <laughs> and buy a home and go out and buy more stuff. And I'm just like, wait, what? No, it's not. It, well, I mean, what do they say? History doesn't repeat itself, but often it rhymes. It rhymes. So, I mean, this is something I think similar to that. I and mean, we've seen a lot of a lot of talk of of uh, the dot com 2.0 and and. Whether or not we've hit that, who knows? But I mean, I think it's it's worth at least observing here that these these are a lot of the same behaviors that uh, that really sent our economy 
in a, in a death spiral, not not but just a few years ago. And so, I mean, I I think we've we've maintained this low interest rate environment for so long, and while we are a credit based economy, it certainly is not your duty as an American to go out there and and take out a loan, right? I mean, I I think. We've had this aspiration for so long to create this nation of homeowners, and I just think the fact of the matter is that we're probably less suited for being a nation of homeowners now than than ever before. Because I mean, people are so apt to pick up and move somewhere else because maybe their job takes them there, maybe they're changing professions. It's just easy to do that now, and it's it's easier to work off-site because because of technology, and so. Any time I see something like this, I mean, it's it's obvious that incentives drives this kind of behavior. I mean, they they just want they want to book that loan because their incentives are, are steering them towards that, and and then those loans typically you know go off to someone else, and, and they don't have to worry about it. That doesn't typically end well, you know, and so I, I think that um, I I hope that this is not a sign that that uh, that more and more lenders will. Try doing this. I mean, I I think we have a bit of a bit of a, a more difficult environment now to to take out a loan than before, given the regulations. But it seems like it's still pretty easy. And um, I I also think, and I think this is part of what Matt is getting at. I think it's interesting to see the branding choices that these two businesses have made. Rocket right. Mortgage is making the choice to really push home. You really need this, and SoFi. Not just the educational message, but also a little bit of, hey, you know what? We're not handing out loans to everybody. There, there are. You have to qualify to get us to lend you some money, and yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Not at they're, all. They're they're playing. It looks on the surface like SoFi is playing the long game, and that's a good point. I think uh, one thing I've always wished is that when you go in to take out a loan, whether it's for a house or a car, whatever. You have to give them all sorts of information regarding you, your history, your credit worthiness, yada yada yada. But once you give them that, then they essentially make the decision based on that rather objective information. Um, I wish they would actually put consumers through a simple test, like you go to get your driver's license and you have to take a little test. Yes. Why not have to take a little test to actually qualify for a loan? You know, some basic terminology. Just some understanding about credit works. What's going to happen if you don't pay your bill? The long-term ramifications there. I think that could be pretty handy. It won't happen, but it's the not going to happen. But it would be helpful. Marketfoolery@fool.com is our email address from Christopher Johnson. He writes: According to Felix Salmon, twenty years ago, the drink of choice by seventy percent was of eighteen to twenty-nine year olds was beer. Currently, I'm assuming this is we're we're choosing among alcohols. Not just any liquid whatsoever. Well, I would <laughs> although, although maybe you know, beer does get seventy percent over water. College um, is a crazy time, Chris. <laughs> currently, it has shrunk to forty percent. Salmon described this as a secular downturn for beer. What are your thoughts, and what are the implications for Boston Beer Company? I I don't think there's any doubt. You look at all of the data that's come out over the last few years that beer consumption in North America. With respect to certainly the alcohol market is on the decline, and wine and spirits are on the rise. Absolutely, and we've seen. Um, I've been following Boston beer for a number of years now, and one of the biggest risks to look out for is the market share that spirits and wine gain versus beer. In 2014, 
spirits gained market share in the U.S., reaching 35.2% of the overall alcoholic beverage market, and, and that comes at the expense of beer and wine. We see this year in and year out. Beer, it, it does lose a little share. Now, it, it seems to be somewhat cyclical, and I think that right now it's it's a wonderful time to be a beer drinker because of this craft movement, and we've seen so many um, options out there now. I mean, there's something 41, 4,200 actual craft breweries now in, in the United States versus like a thousand just a few years ago or whatever. Uh, I think so. With Boston beer, I think Boston beer is in an interesting position here because while they're not a a big scale brewer like Anheuser Busch and Bev or or what have you, they are far bigger and far. Um, Far more fit to deal with this type of competitive industry than some little craft brewer that just opened up shop, um, and so I think what we're going to see as as time goes on here, we're going to see more consolidation in this space, and we're going to see Boston Beer probably continue to bring some of these craft brewers under their wing, the ones that they deem worthy. Um, I don't think you're going to see them go out there and make these crazy deals like Constellation recently made to buy Ballast Point for a billion dollars. I mean, that was just absurd. Um, and I think that's going to come back to probably bite them at some point. Not to say Ballast isn't good beer; it is good beer, but it's not that the company wasn't worth a billion dollars. Um, I think that ultimately, when we see weakness in the in the beer market, ultimately that's actually going to favor Boston beer. They have a competitive advantage here over a lot of those craft brewers in the scale, the distribution. The business that they've already established, and so there is an advantage there that they that they have over those smaller beer makers that don't have the same resources or, or financial capability. Um, we we were able to add Boston Beer to million dollar portfolio at a very very attractive price. We had it on our watch list for for something like eight or nine months, and we're very patient with it. We got it at somewhere around one hundred sixty three dollars per share, which we felt like was just too too good to pass up. Because even in the face of a competitive industry like this, it still works out well for Boston Beer. Uh, smart ownership there, Jim Cook. He's been very clear in saying he thinks he'll be the last American owner of this business. A lot of foreign interest there in in this company, and I wouldn't be surprised at all at some point to see some crazy acquisition. Um, or at least offer because he fields a lot of them. But there, he has a book coming out um, soon here. I, th- I think it's available for pre-order. I think the title of it is "Quench Your Own Thirst," but it's basically the Boston beer story. So I'm on the on the lookout to read that. I can't wait, and I would recommend anyone out there with any interest in the industry uh, to get that one on your on your uh, to read list. Couple of points before we wrap up. First, uh, thanks again uh, for all the help last week. We got in Austin, Texas, at the South by Southwest Festival to uh, Peter Lewis, who's uh, one of the people running the interactive division, and Elizabeth Sproul, who was uh, she's part of Peter's team, and and she was right there at the podcast center helping us. And this is the first year they've done that. I was going to say that looked like a really neat setup there. It was a great setup, and when we walked into. The trade show, and if you've whether you've been to South by Southwest or not, if you've ever been to a trade show of any kind, if it is of any size at all, you know the feeling when you first walk into a trade show and you you're struck by the enormity of the room, and 
you think on some level, wow, I I want to see as much of this as I can, and you're going down all these aisles, and it can seem a little bit like a maze from time to time. And fortunately, they're they're so organized at South by Southwest that we had a, a map, and we knew exactly that the the podcast center was in row 1100, and that you look up at the ceiling, and they've got the rows, they've got banners <laughs> hanging down to tell you what. So we're thinking, great, we we're we're heading towards the back of this enormous hall, and I was with Dan Boyd. And we're walking along, and we were expecting, honestly, we were expecting a sofa, a couple of chairs, and a small table tucked into a corner. And we got the sofa and two chairs and table, but it was at the end of the row, up on a stage with a great South By branded backdrop. It was fantastic. It looked cool. Yeah. A lot of people. Very helpful. A lot of people uh, walking around while you guys were doing that? A bunch of people walking around and there were were rows set up where people could sit and there were also tables. So, there were were a few people who came and and sat and listened. There were other people who clearly just thought, I've been walking around (laughs) for a while. I just want to rest my feet. I'm going to sit at this table and pull out my laptop and do some work. But uh, but it was a, it was a great setup. So thank you to Peter and Elizabeth. And also we had a, a member get together, little listener meetup. So uh, thank you to Guero's Taco Bar because uh-huh. yet another great place to get tacos in Austin, Texas. And thank you to uh, Brian, Benjamin, Rick, Angie. Uh, just a bunch of our members, uh, along with a few students from the University of Texas, uh, nice. Jordan, Daniel, Sophia. Thank you for coming out. And uh, you were talking about books to put on your watch list for your for reading later this year. I want to mention again the bonus episode of Market Foolery that we did. Uh, Jason was one of the people in the room for that, where you can win your own investing library. You can just go to podcasts.fool.com. That's podcasts. .fool.com. It's an episode with me, Jason, Morgan Housel, Robert Brokamp, David Gardner, Christine Hargis, talking about some great books. Remind the folks, what was your book? Sure. Uh, Citizen Coke, The Making of uh, Coca-Cola Capitalism, was the book I uh, promoted. and It's just a very fun story about an, an iconic American brand I think everybody can relate to, but it tells you from the very beginning how everything sort of took shape, how the business started, how it evolved. And, and I think is the new Coke debacle part of the it book. It is part of it. Oh, now good. it's not a major part of it, but it is a part of it. It's it's a part of that history there. It's just it's fascinating to think about this business and sort of how they were at the forefront of building this huge business and really shirking I don't want to say shirking, but just sort of just, just sort of pushing all of that risk off to, to other parties involved. They really did a great job at sort of outsourcing the production and distribution uh, of of the product. And and a lot of a lot of businesses that we know and love today have followed that same model and done very well with it. Uh, but as with with any business, competitive landscape changes, and they face their fair share of challenges. But a fun story to read, and one I think everybody can relate to, just because of of the fact that it's Coca Cola. So again, go to podcast.fool.com. We're giving away ten books. You can win your own investing library. You can see all the books there. You can listen to the episode and enter your email address to win. And uh, I made this point on Motley Fool Money, but I should make it here. Uh, we're not. The only thing we're doing with your email address 
is picking 10 people. <laughs> We're picking 10 winners, and that's it. So, you're not getting on some secret email list where we spam the hell out of you. Um, well, this- I mean, we may consider you know opening up a lending wing of the business here soon, Rocket Mortgage yeah. 2.0, something <laughs> yeah, they, like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I mean if, if there's anyone we're going to seems take like a there's page some real opportunity playbook, there. It's Rocket Mortgage. No, we're not doing anything with your email address. We're picking ten winners in advance of Financial Literacy Month, which is April. So uh, go to podcast.fool.com to check it out. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. Have a great trip. Thanks a lot. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll be right back.